0: 1 Thessalonians 5, we're going to wrap up this little mini-series that we've been doing um, this morning called Real Responsibilities for Right Relationships in the Church and the different aspects of our relationships with uh, different aspects of the church. In the opening lines of the divine conspiracy, rediscovering our hidden life in God, the author Dallas Willard describes a true yet almost unimaginable event. He writes these words, Recently, a pilot was practicing high speed maneuvers in a jet fighter, and she turned the controls for what she thought was a steep ascent. Unfortunately, she flew it straight into the ground. And then he writes the line She was unaware that she had been flying upside down. Dallas continues This is a parable of human existence in our times. Not exactly everyone is crashing, although there is enough of that going on, but most of us as individuals and the world as a society live at high speed and often with no clue as to whether we are flying upside down or right side up. Indeed, we are haunted by a strong suspicion that there may be no difference, or at least that it is unknown or irrelevant, unquote. Interesting quote. What Dallas suggests about our society can be equally applied to the church. Unfortunately, an alarming number of churches, ministries, individual Christians even, are living at breakneck speed and unaware of their inverted position. Throughout history, we have been eyewitnesses to the tragic consequences as Entire congregations have been doctrinally inverted by charismatic, contagious leaders to their own demise. Blindly accepting and attempting to ascend to the heights of spiritual freedom, followers have instead flown full speed to their eternal death simply because they did not know the difference. Now, my first major encounter with this, and maybe some of yours as well, happened 40 years ago in 1978 on November 18th. Probably doesn't ring a bell to you, does it? It will. The place? Jonestown, Guyana. The ministry? The People's Temple of the Disciples of Christ. The pilot? Jim Jones. The tragedy, Jim Jones and over 900 men, women and children died from either cyanide and tranquilizer lace laced strawberry punch, which they either voluntarily ingested or were forced to consume. By the way, this mass suicide slash killing resulted in the largest single loss of American civilian life in a deliberate act until September 11th, 2001 in the terrorist attacks. The greatest tragedy of Jonestown, said John MacArthur, was not that nearly 1,000 people died, but that they died believing they were serving God. Most were unaware that they were flying upside down. A little more recently, but still 25 years ago, Now, when David Koresh and over 70 of his Branch Davidian followers perished in Waco, Texas on April 19th in 1993, most of those people were unaware that they were flying upside down. And again, six years later, in 1997, when Marshall Applewhite and 39 Heaven's Gate cultists attempted a steep spiritual and suicidal ascent from their San Diego-based headquarters to the comet Hale-Bopp, they ended up needlessly crashing into the reality of Hebrews 9, verse 27, which says, It is appointed unto man to die once, and after this comes judgment. And again, they were unaware that they were flying upside down, spiritually. What is shocking to me is that many of these people and the leaders involved in these cults originally came from, get it, mainline Christian churches. What happened? Now you may be sitting there thinking, I'm not that crazy. It could never happen to me. The fact is it can happen to anyone who doesn't have a biblical system of spiritual checks and balances in place. Granted, many of these aberrant teachings are easy to spot, but my concern is with the subtle, the deceptive teachings that have made their way into churches all throughout history and continue to do so today. And I must tell you, it's not that they are creeping in unnoticed anymore. In some places, they are strolling right in the front door and taking their place right in the pulpit. Our cultural penchant for tolerance and diversity... Has so worked its way into the contemporary church that all kinds of unconscionable activities, experiences, and teachings are being practiced and completely swallowed by well meaning but undiscerning disciples. For example, let me give you an excerpt from a dynamic young pastor's recorded sermon in a so called Christian church a few years ago when he gave the message his 3,500 seat church was overflowing with people. Preaching from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where God says, let us make man in our image, the pastor expounds. He says, the Father and the Son the Holy Ghost had a little conference, and they said, let us make man an exact duplicate of us. An exact duplicate of God. Say it out loud. I'm an exact duplicate of God. And the whole congregation repeats it a bit tentatively and uncertainly. Come on, he says, say it. And he leans them in unison. I'm an exact duplicate of God. Say it again. I'm an exact duplicate of God. And the congregation now is frenzied and they're getting into it louder and bolder and with more enthusiasm each time they repeat it. Say it like you mean it. He's yelling now. I'm an exact duplicate of God. Yell it loud. Shout it to the rooftops. And they follow as he leads. I'm an exact duplicate of God over and over and over again. When God looks in the mirror, he says, he sees me. When I look in the mirror, I see God. Hallelujah. You know, sometimes people say to me when they're mad at me and want to put me down, you just think you're a little God. And I say, thank you. Hallelujah. You got that right. Who do you think you are? Jesus? Yep. Are you kids running around here acting like gods? Why not? God told me to, since I'm an exact duplicate of God, I'm going to act like God. This is an actual excerpt from a message. Not many years ago, this kind of false teacher would have been thrown out of the church. Not long before that, He would have been burned at the stake. And you know what they did to Jesus. And he was God. Yet this kind of teaching is becoming so commonplace that I fear that even some that are hearing this right now and some that will hear this on the radio broadcast could be deceived. You know why? Because it's on TV. It's online. It's on the radio. It's in the Wall Street Journal. It's in our churches. Should it come as any surprise to us on the contrary those who are familiar with the scripture know that false teaching of this nature will run rampant in the time before Christ's return is that right Jesus warned us the Bible refers to it as the apostasy the turning away from the truth in 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 2 to 5 Paul wrote about this He says, don't be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for it will not come until the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Somebody should have pulled that verse of Scripture out in that congregation. Paul warned the Ephesian elders of this kind of thing early on in the church's history, actually, in uh, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, hear those words? From among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Those are scary verses of scripture to me. Now, while acceptance of heresy is happening throughout Christendom, an equal but opposite danger also threatens us. Okay, so shift gears a little bit. Other churches are completely rejecting what God is saying. What really is the work of God? What really is the word of truth in reaction to those abuses? The truth is being ignored and bona fide biblical encounters with God are being missed. That is equally tragic. So what in the world do we do? What are we to do? Well, let me just say this. The danger of apostasy calls for the awareness of the church. Therefore, every one of us needs to employ a system of checks and balances concerning everything that comes into your sensory perception. Whether it comes out of the mouth of a teacher, the heart of a friend, the pages of a book, the airwaves of a radio broadcast, a show on television, a podcast of the week, or a perceived word from the Lord, it must be tested. It must be tested, and that goes for you as an individual and for the church as a corporate body, and for me as well. Because maintaining a right relationship to the truth requires checks, and balances in the church. Amen? That's the word of God through Paul this morning as he closes his exhortations to us, to the Thessalonian church and us as we close out this mini-series. Just as he has been doing throughout this section in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul gets straight to the point. I'd like you to look at it with me as I read. It'll be on the screen behind me. Verse 19, Paul says, Do not... Quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, and abstain from every form of evil. The Thessalonian believers had their share of spiritual hucksters propagating false teaching under the guise of the Spirit's inspiration. That's precisely why Paul wrote two letters to them. But as he addressed these teachings, he also had to make sure that these new believers would not become so jaded in their faith that they'd go to the other extreme and throw out all of the Spirit's work. In essence, he was exhorting them to something. You know what he was exhorting them to? Discernment. Discernment. Here's a definition of discernment. To discriminate to perceive differences, to separate by sifting. In its very simplest definition, discernment is nothing more than the ability to decide between truth and error, right and wrong. Discernment is the process of making careful distinctions in our thinking about the truth. And discernment is precisely what we need today. Paul's instruction is that rather than throw out the baby with the bathwater... We should exercise clear discernment. Learn to think biblically. How? By putting everything that comes into our senses through these five checks and balances that are listed right here. Not the only ones in the Bible, mind you, but at least these. Okay? And they're pretty simple. If you want a little grid to go by, today I'm advocating a grid for you to use. Check the boxes. Number one, if its spirit ignited, Don't suppress it. Number two, if it's scripturally acceptable, don't stifle it. Number three, if it's readily available, scrutinize it. Fourthly, if it's spiritually valuable, seize it. And lastly, if it's inherently evil, separate yourself from it, steer clear of it. That's what Paul says here in these verses. If you want a checklist, that's your checklist. Put every spiritual thing you encounter through that grid and you will show good discernment. Let's take them one at a time. If it's Holy Spirit ignited, don't suppress it. Verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. And one of the metaphors the Bible uses referring to the Spirit's work within a person or a church's life is fire, right? You've heard people say that, right? He's on fire. She's on fire for the Lord. He's like, it's like a flame that warms the heart, enlightens the mind, and empowers our spirits. Timothy was encouraged by Paul to fan into flame or kindle afresh the spiritual gift he was given in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. And not to neglect that gift. Let me ask you a question. Are you fanning into flame the gift that God's given you? The spiritual gift God's given you? Are you actively engaged in spiritual activities that cause the fire of the spirit to burn hotter and hotter in you? Because here's something about fires that you need to know. The more you feed them, the hotter they burn. My gas grill started running out of propane one day. Anybody ever have that happen? And it always happens, like, not when you're three quarters of the way through the meat, It's like when you're one quarter of the way through it. The flame was dying and nothing was getting accomplished at all. Tank was empty. It's the same thing in the church and in our spiritual lives, isn't it? If you're not burning brightly, maybe there's a fuel problem. Maybe your tank's not as full as it should be. According to the old respected preacher, Joseph Parker, there are a couple of ways to quench the spirit. One way is to withdraw the fuel. The fire dies when the fuel's not replenished. And the second way is by dousing the flame, right? Pouring cold water on it or something. That's the essence of what Paul means here when he says don't quench the spirit. You ever see that happening? Ever see the spirit being quenched in somebody? Individuals do it, whole churches engage in it. When ministry is stifled, the Spirit is quenched. And He can be quenched, according to this word. The NIV translates this in picturesque form when it says this, Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Now that's it in a nutshell, really. Quenching the Spirit is like pouring water on a fire that's burning and providing benefit to everyone around it. Whether it's burning in you or others around you, Paul says, Don't put it out. Don't put it out. Don't try to stop what the Spirit is doing in your life or your church's life. Reread the context here of chapter chapter 5 and verses 12 to 22. If all those things aren't being practiced, the fire of the Spirit will be doused. In other words, if there's no respect or love for leadership, the spirit will be quenched. If people are not living in peace with each other, the spirit's going to be strangled. If there's no spiritual admonishment, encouragement, or patience, the spirit's not in control. If we're not seeking each other's good, if there's a lack of joyfulness or prayerfulness, thankfulness in people's attitudes, then guess what? The will of God's not being fulfilled, therefore the spirit is being quenched. It all works together. Now that doesn't mean that we should allow everything done in the name of the Spirit to go on in a church. We need to test and examine everything carefully, it says here, according to the light of Scripture. Holding on to what is good and rejecting what is not. However, we ought to note, as J.I. Packer points out, that while one may effectively be putting out a fire by dousing it, one cannot make it burn again simply by stopping pouring water on it. Has to be lighted afresh, rekindled. Similarly, when the spirit has been quenched, it's beyond our power to undo the damage that we have done. We can only cry out to God in penitence asking that he will revive his work, unquote. That's what revival is all about, right? Right? Don't quench the Spirit, Paul says. The second person of the triune God. He's not just an impersonal force. He has a mind. He has emotions. He has a will. And we can violate every single one of those three, those things. And there's a third way that I think we can put out the Spirit's fire, and that's by dumping not water, but dirt on it. Right? By dumping dirt on it. And when we do, we not only quench Him, but we grieve Him. Did you know that the Spirit can be grieved? Ephesians 4.30. Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. And grieve in that context its a very strong word. You, you, we're all very sensitive to that word right now. Grieving. Surrounding it are weighty emotions like pain and hurt and sorrow and distress. I like the way J.B. Phillips has translated this verse in Ephesians 4. Never wound the Holy Spirit. He is, remember, the seal upon you of your eventual full redemption. Don't wound him. If you've ever had to deal, and we are, with the loss of someone close to you, either through death, divorce, or desertion, you know what I'm talking about. You've been wounded. To grieve the Holy Spirit is indeed to wound him personally and deeply. It's to break his heart. Do you ever think that you could break God's heart? The Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth, is grieved by sin, and that's contrary to truth. So whatever violates God's will grieves his spirit. Things like, according to Ephesians 4, unwholesome talk and unholy attitudes and unchristian behavior... It's all in Ephesians 4. But we grieve him when we lie instead of speaking the truth, when we vent our anger unbiblically, when we steal instead of share, when we tear others down instead of build them up, when we treat our spouses badly, ignore our kids, gossip on the phone, cheat on our taxes, cheat on our wives or husbands, refuse to forgive, harbor bitterness. (laughs) It goes on and on and on, doesn't it? It's all in Ephesians 4. You can read every one of them. But when we say, I know that I shouldn't be doing this. But I'm forgiven, so I'm going to do it anyway. That wounds the Holy Spirit. And he weeps. And you know what else? Sometimes you can feel it. Have you ever felt that in your soul? This is empty feeling in your gut. And you know that the Spirit's hurting. If you don't quickly get it back on track, you begin not only to grieve the Spirit, but to resist the Spirit. To actually strive against the Spirit. Did you know that he can be resisted? Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 in verse 51. Stephen's great speech in front of the Sanhedrin in the Pharisees and Sadducees and all those men of God, so-called men of God. Stephen says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. God is certainly at work Working is constantly working in our lives to bring us into a perfect relationship with him and he reaches out to us through people and events and circumstances consistently revealing himself to us that we might respond positively to him. Friends, don't ever stop responding to the Spirit's work. So if you're grieving the spirit to the point of resisting him and you persist in that practice, you may find that you're not a child of God at all and are nearing this perilous point of no return. This was the charge against the Old Testament Jews and Jesus' charge against the Pharisees. Isaiah said it this way, and all there... All their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy he redeemed them, and he lifted them, and he carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned himself to become their enemy, and he fought against them. That's a disturbing verse in Scripture. It's one of the only verses of Scripture, by the way, where the Holy Spirit is specifically named in the Old Testament, and it says you can grieve Him. And they did, to the point where God became their enemy. Notice the pattern. They rebelled and they grieved the Holy Spirit. God turned against them. He fought against them. That's pretty scary to me. Here's the point at which I believe a person or a church is exposed as apostate. They reached the point of total rejection of the Holy Spirit's truth about Christ, and I firmly believe that at this point people don't lose their salvation. They are exposed as those who simply never had it. And now they have reached this state of what someone has called determined unbelief. Determined unbelief. The writer of Hebrews says that at this stage, the Spirit actually can be something else, he can be insulted. Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 29, the writer says this, How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? People who reach this stage have grieved, resisted, and quenched the Spirit to the point that they reject every and any opportunity that they have been given to come to Christ. And there's nothing left for them but judgment, according to the Scripture. Paul says, don't stifle the Holy Spirit's work in the church. Don't stifle it in your life. Don't quench Him. In relationship to the truth, if it's Holy Spirit kindled, don't suppress it. Receive it, right? Back to 1 Thessalonians 5. Second thing Paul says here is if it's scripturally acceptable, don't stifle it. Verse 20, don't despise prophetic utterances. Now, Technically the term here, prophet, refers to one who speaks forth God's revealed word. We tend to think of a prophet as someone who foretells the future, right? As God reveals it to him. But biblically a prophet is really someone who foretells the truth. He speaks it forth. He doesn't always have to tell the future. Now, without a completed Bible, it was all the more imperative that these early believers exercised extreme spiritual discernment in validating the genuineness of prophetic utterances. Today, we have this God-breathed, inerrant, infallible, and fully authoritative Word of God at our complete disposal on our phones, on our iPads, anywhere you want it. You can carry it with you can even have it in old school book form. <laughs> and as believers, or oh, even better, you can have it hidden in your heart. But as believers, we also have this indwelling Holy Spirit to help us to discern what is true and what is false. But judging from the amount of aberrant theology being swallowed by the masses, it's apparent that the messages being spoken forth are being a are being evaluated by some other criteria than this word. Is that right? But apparently, the believers in Thessalonica were throwing out and underrating the value of true prophetic uh, revelation because of the false ones that they had encountered. They didn't have the benefit of this. So Paul had to be really stern with them and say, hey, look, don't despise prophetic utterances, but make sure you're examining everything carefully. They disregarded what was being prophetically put forth. And Paul advised them not to despise it, not to disparage it. We're no different, are we? We're, there is so much so-called forthtelling of God's word going on. I call it playing the God card. You know what I mean by that? As you're in a conversation with somebody and somebody says, The Lord told me. The Lord told me. Well, that may well be true. And there's a lot of that taking place today. It's easy. It's easy for people to simply treat real prophetic utterance as nothing, to discount it. So you hear that enough and you start to discount that, right? It's like, oh, oh, here we go. The God card's being played. I can't argue with that because the Lord told them. Even though what... They're saying the Lord told them to do was completely out of line with the Scripture. And so we tend to just throw everything out, discount it, downgrade it, despise it. Unfortunately, today, many people rate the preaching forth of God's Word totally, purely on an entertainment level because of that reason. But that's nothing new either. If you turn to Ezekiel in the Old Testament and look at what he has to say about it, in chapter 33, verses 30 to 33, God says to Ezekiel in verse 30, Yes, for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses, speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, Come now and hear what the message is, which comes forth from the Lord. It's being sarcastic. If you could read between the lines, it'd be sarcasm there. And they come to you as people come and sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth and their heart goes after their gain. Behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they don't practice them. And when it comes to pass, as surely it will, they will know that a prophet has been in their midst. You know that we have so much of the word of God available to us. Every time you get in your car and you turn on the radio station and you listen to somebody's teaching, we're responsible for that, you know. And so I think what it means for us today to not despise prophetic utterance is simply this. Practically, it may mean something as simple as hearing a message you know it applies to you and yet you fail to act on it. That's simple. James chapter 1, right? It's like the man who looks at himself in a mirror and then as soon as he turns away, he's forgotten about the guy that he saw in the mirror. James is comparing it to the word of God at work in our lives. Interesting there in that verse 25 when it says, like a man who looks in the mirror, the word for man is not just generally mankind, it's the word for male. Contrasting women being more sensitive to the word of God than men. It's interesting. To look into the mirror of God's word involves an obligation, a responsibility to act. And when we fail to put it into practice, what God is telling us, we can despise or literally consider as nothing his revealed desires, his prophetic utterance to us. It's like hearing your father's request, turning around and completely ignoring it. What an insult that would be to your father. I remember reading a great example of this kind of thing. And it involved Mr. Rogers, of all people, who you know was an ordained minister. And when he was studying for the ministry, he, uh, he was taking a class and he used to have to rate sermons. So he writes, years ago, my wife and I were worshiping in a little church with friends of ours and we were on vacation. And I was in the middle of my homiletics course at the time. During the sermon, I kept ticking off every mistake I thought the preacher was making. He must have been 80 years old. And when this interminable, he says, sermon finally ended, I turned to one of my friends intending to say something critical about the sermon. And I stopped myself when I saw tears running down my wife's cheeks. And she whispered in my ear, she said, he said exactly what I needed to hear today. Fred Rogers says, that was really a seminal experience for me. He says, I was judging and she was needing. And the Holy Spirit was responding to need, not judgment. Well, that's a corrective, isn't it? Paul attached tremendous value to the prophetic word. He placed prophets next to apostles in the list of those God appointed to the church in 1 Corinthians 12. Apostles and prophets, they were the foundation to the church in Ephesians 2, verse 20. And prophecy, Paul wrote, takes precedence among the spiritual gifts, way more important than tongues or healing or miracles, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 14. He urged his readers to actually desire the gift of prophecy, prophetic utterance. So maintaining a right relationship to the truth requires these checks and balances in the church. Paul says, if it's spirit kindled, don't suppress it. If it's scripturally acceptable, don't stifle it. Instead, if it's readily available, scrutinize it in verse 21. But examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, and abstain from every form of evil. A long time ago, there was a Cubs relief pitcher by the name of Bob Patterson who once described his pitch when the Cincinnati Reds' Barry Larkin hit for a game winning home run this way. He said, It was a cross between a screwball and a changeup. It was a screw up. <laughs> <laughs> now, it may be easy to tell a bad pitch when you see one at a baseball game, but it's not always easy to detect a bad pitch from the pulpit. It takes discernment. It takes distinguishing truth from error. It takes careful scrutiny, examining everything carefully. Paul says examine it carefully, test it. That doesn't mean to try everything once, by the way, when he says test it. He means prove it. Check out all the ingredients. I have many food allergies. I go into the store. I go into someone's home, i got to read every label on everything that's in everything I eat to see if there's anything in there that is going to poison me, basically. It's not that bad, but, but you know what I mean? It's like I need to examine everything carefully. That's exactly what Paul is saying we need to do, spiritually speaking. Before you can put any prophet, preacher, or message to the test... You have to have a standard to go by, and it's more than just what you feel. Yes, God uses our feelings. If you sense something is not right, that's a good flag. But the standard is God's word. You know that, right? You know it? Friends, every one of you in this room needs to know what's in this book. It's your survival manual. The deception of the enemy is so subtle and so crafty that if you don't, watch this now, listen to this. It's a good note to take. If you don't know the truth well enough, you will never recognize the lies soon enough. Everyone who has ever been sucked into a cult or manipulated by a false prophet or a smooth-talking preacher has at some point stopped measuring that teaching by the Scripture. The absolute bottom-line test of one who speaks forth God's Word is conformity to the Scripture. Whenever someone assumes the role of a teacher, whether it be me or anyone else that you hear, you need to take what I call the 820 Express. The 820 Express is Isaiah 820 to the law, to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. It's a good verse to remember. You know, the 900 plus members of the People's Temple Christian Church led by Jim Jones would never have died if they had that test. Because there was a time when he picked up his Bible and he said to the people, You don't need this anymore. All you need is me. He said that. He began to deride traditional Christianity as a flyaway religion and reject the Bible as a white man's justification to dominate women and enslave people of color. Now that was way back then. What are you hearing today? Same thing. He authored a booklet that he would distribute in the temple called The Letter Killeth, pointing out that he, what he felt were the contradictions, the absurdities, and the atrocities in the Bible, but also stating that the Bible contained great truths. He said the Bible contained beliefs about only a sky god or a buzzard god who was no god at all. Somebody's ears should have perked up at that and said, hey, we're not following you anymore, buddy. In Acts 20, Paul said, beware. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus said, beware. He said, pay attention. One of the greatest dangers in the church today is that people are not paying attention. They're not staying awake. Men and women speak, people listen, many follow, teachers fall, people flounder, and their faith gets shipwrecked. Why? Because somewhere along the line they stopped paying attention to Christ and they started putting their faith in a human being. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith that apostatize, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. You know what? Paying attention to the truth, my friends, means work. It means not accepting everything that you hear or anything that you hear unless it is backed up by the truth of Scripture. So let me ask you are you paying attention? How often are you checking your Bible to see if what I'm saying is true? Some of you don't even bring your Bibles to church. Am I to assume that you know the word so well that you could spot even the slightest deviation from the truth? That's, that's, that's kind of a little corrective. I don't mean to spank you at all. <laughs> but you can't just trust what I say Or anybody that stands in this pulpit. How often do you scrutinize the teachers you listen to on the radio? Or the podcasts? Now I'm not suggesting by any stretch to go on a witch hunt. But I am suggesting checks and balances like Paul does. I love Eugene Peterson's rendition of this text. He says, don't suppress the spirit. Don't stifle those who have a word from the master. On the other hand, don't be gullible. Check out everything and keep only that what's good... Throw out anything that's tainted with evil. Don't be gullible. Mark those words. Write them right down. Put them wherever you can see them. we got to plaster that across our dashboards, right? Don't be gullible. Just like on the screen behind me. should be up there. Don't be gullible. Acts seventeen eleven says, prove the word. 1 John chapter 4 says, test the spirits. Matthew chapter 7 says, prove the teacher's fruit. Look at their fruit. In other words, here's here's a quick one. Identify character, scrutinize their conduct, analyze their creed, and observe their converts. That's a good way to test any teacher. Examine everything. It's that important. Your spiritual life is at stake. Your eternal destiny may be in the balance. And at times, believers unknowingly become attached to a false teacher for a time. But you know what? I believe that a sincere, truthful follower of Christ who is devoted to the truth isn't going to adhere to the teachings of a false prophet ultimately because John chapter 10 in verses 4 and 5 and verse 27 says, I know my sheep and they know me. My sheep hear my voice and I know them a stranger they will not follow. My friends, we need to apply the tests. In our day of multimedia messages and carefully crafted broadcasts around the world, it becomes increasingly difficult to spot the inaccuracies and the deficiencies of a false teacher. Yet when we apply these scriptural scriptural tests, the error eventually will rise to the surface. You know, there's a hungry pack of wolves out there in sheep's clothing, and they permeate every kind of media that you and I encounter. And the words of Jeremiah ought to ring in our ears. In Jeremiah 5, verses 30 and 31, an appalling thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule on their own authority. And my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? See that tragedy of Jonestown? It graphically illustrates the gruesome end of it. That's why Paul warns that if spiritual teaching is available, scrutinize it. And our response is a two-sided coin. Very simple. Verse 21, hold fast to that which is good. So if it's spiritually valuable, seize it. Take full possession of it. Hold on to it. Paul wrote, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Paul prayed for the Philippians that their love would abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment so that they would approve the things that are excellent. So, if it's spiritually valuable, seize it. But if it's inherently evil, Paul concludes here, separate yourself from it. Separate yourself from it in verse 22. The New Living Translation says it this way keep away from every kind of evil. J.B. Phillips says, steer clear of evil in any form. And I love the message, it says, throw out anything tainted with evil. And the word implies an actual form or kind of evil. Not just a semblance of evil. Not just in a so-called, you know, an appearance type of a thing. The word appearance in the King James Version really means form. It means the actual form of evil. Because, you know, you and I know full well that it's almost impossible to abstain from everything in this world that merely looks like it's evil, right? I mean, the Pharisees thought that Jesus was evil because he was healing on the Sabbath. To them, it looked evil, but it wasn't evil. So that's what Paul is saying here. He says, abstain from everything that is is evil. Paul's meaning is very simple. If it's got the slightest bit of evil in it, throw it out. Not don't flirt with it, don't toy with it, don't see how close you can get with it, stay away from it. And I'm sure you don't need me to list all the examples, right? Because maintaining a right relationship to the truth requires checks and balances in the church and in our lives. So put everything through the grid and we'll close. If it's spirit ignited, don't suppress it. If it's scripturally acceptable, Don't stifle it. If it's readily available, scrutinize it. If it's spiritually valuable, seize it. And if it's inherently evil, separate yourself from it. You know what Jesus gave us? A helper, didn't he? The Holy Spirit. Whom Jesus said would teach us all things and bring us into the knowledge of the truth. Amen? The question is, do you have him? Do you have him? If you're in Christ, you do. Praise the Lord. If you're not in Christ, you need him. You need him to open up your eyes and to begin to fly the plane right side up. Because you don't want to crash and burn. 2 Peter, Peter writes these words in chapter 3. Be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And so, I'll conclude this mini-series in today's service by pronouncing Paul's blessing on you in the next verses. So bow your heads, close your eyes. In the words of Paul, and now... May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass, for I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.